Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Dr. Rick, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm doing great, Bill. Thanks. Good. Glad to have you on. Uh, Dr. Rick, as as his uh, moniker there is uh, is explaining, he is in the medical profession. And uh, and Rick, I, I wanted to have you on today because uh, you and I have, have talked about setting up this interview and having a conversation in some ways about your life experience, but also about uh, mental illness and the kind of struggle that that is. And I know for Latter-day Saints that this tends to be a prevalent uh, a prevalent issue out West that I think in some regards Latter-day Saints have are known for a high use of uh, drugs and medicines that help with those kinds of, of issues. And and so I thought maybe we'd start off uh, by you just sharing maybe a brief bio about yourself to kind of give the listeners some background and then we'll get started from there. Sure. Uh, I'm an active Latter-day Saint, married to uh, my first and only wife uh, for about 15 years. Uh, we've got five children. I've been in the medical practice as far as being graduated and finished with training for about a year now. I do uh, primary medicine or family medicine, so I, I specialize at being a generalist. I do a bit of everything, but one of the things I do see in the office a lot is uh, depression and anxiety and bipolar. Um, since we're talking about mental health, I'll, I'll disclose it's not that, that big a deal to me. Uh, I am on medication. I, I take Wellbutrin and Prozac. Uh, when I take it, I feel like myself and feel great. And when I, I go off of it, I have problems. So that's me. Excellent. And and I want to maybe start off there. Maybe share with our listeners your experience kind of growing up and recognizing maybe that there were some some issues of depression that were maybe bigger or more severe than, than other people around you that, that you recognize that there was a need to do something. I mean, I had, I had a fairly happy childhood. There's no issues of, uh, of physical or mental or verbal or sexual abuse um, in, in my family that I'm aware of. Uh, I started feeling issues with depression, oh gosh, uh, when I first went off to school off to college and recognized that even though I knew lots of people, I was still sort of a loner. Um, and in, in high school, that didn't bother me so much because I, I had some, some close friends through music, uh, but didn't have those few close friends in, in college. So I started to really uh, feel down. Uh, served a mission, and when things weren't going uh, particularly well or easy with the work, which never happens to any other missionaries, it was just me. At least that, that's how I would feel. Really, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, I have that kind of sense of humor, but um, from my perspective, looking at other missionaries in my district, um, even if things weren't going well for them, I kind of made it, I thought it was better than they may have thought it was, if that makes sense. Um, came home from my mission, uh, had a very fun, euphoric time, got engaged quickly, I, I had known my wife beforehand. Uh, first several years of marriage were fine, no problems. And then I started getting into graduate school. Um, I was in a life sciences program where I was doing basic benchtop research. And um, sort of the fate of my life, of my professional life, of my school life was really literally dependent frequently on how those experiments turned out. And I would sometimes pour my heart and soul into them, come in early, stay late, come on the weekends to do the experiments, and things just would not turn out. And that got me very, very down. Um, so it was somewhat situational, situational, but it was also um, a real chemical and, and lifestyle problem at that time. Let me tell you what, what a day in graduate school would be like. Um, if it was during the good period, I had a friend that I'd play racquetball with. So I'd get up early and go play racquetball with him. And then I'd come home and crawl underneath the uh, slide in the basement the kids would play on, curl up with a blanket and pillows, and lay there trying to fall asleep, very unhappy, very sad, not wanting to go into work because it was just too hard. And I would, I would basically stay down there for a good hour or three in the morning until either my wife would come down and find me and say, you got to get up and go to work, or until... I was afraid that they would notice or miss me or be upset, 
at work and, and then kind of slink in and try and make it seem as if I'd always been there caused me at that time to feel like I wasn't doing well in any other aspect of my life. I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't being a good father. I wasn't being good at church. I wasn't being a good home teacher. I wasn't, uh, I felt like nothing was, was right. Rick, at what time, I mean, how old were you when you first went on medication to treat this? Sure. Um, so there are two basic ways of, of treating, uh, depression. One is, you know, like talk therapy, uh, the most common being cognitive behavioral therapy and the other being medication. Uh, when I was in graduate school, let's see, I was about 24 through 26 or 7, and I was fortunate enough to be able to go and do some cognitive behavioral therapy because I had a lot of control over my schedule. And I did that for about two years, um, actually very much enjoyed it and recommend it to anyone who has a chance to do it. It's a lot of uh, self-exploration and, and you learn a lot about why you think and feel the way you do. After that period of time, I was 26, 27, I started into medical school and no longer had as much control over my schedule and also had different health insurance and finances and so forth. Uh, so rather than continue with the cognitive behavioral therapy, I started on medication. Uh, the first one that my psychiatrist uh, started me on was Wellbutrin. And I felt much better with that. I was able to get up in the morning, get out of bed, uh, go and do my work. I still had some feelings of unease or agitation, we'd call it medically, but just kind of like something's not right, got to keep moving. Um, my psychiatrist then took me off of the Wellbutrin. We tried fluoxetine or Prozac um, for a little bit, and that helped with that feeling of agitation and sort of the, the snappiness, my, my tendency to be short with myself or short with other people. So since I, I still wasn't having trouble getting up in the morning, being off the Wellbutrin, we decided to go back on it and eventually did the combination of the, of the two pills. And that's what I've been on pretty much for the last six or seven years. Gotcha. H have you tried over that course of time to to step away from the medicine? And, and if you have, what's, what's been your experience with doing that? I, I've tried, made, it, made a good try of it at least twice that I remember. I mean, there are times where I will forget or get in the funk or, or something and be rebellious and not take it. We can talk about that later. But I tried um, when I was done with the classwork portion of medical school and was doing my clinicals uh, in the hospitals, and I tried shortly after finishing residency. That one's the, the most proximal in my mind, and I'll, I'll talk about that one. So went through years and years of school, all this training, it's hard, it's terrible. Um, I'm finally done. I have a house, I have a job, I have great co-workers, I have hobbies and things that I enjoy. Um, let's try going off this medication and see what happens. I made it about two months before I realized it just was not going to work out. During that time, I again had that difficulty getting up and out of bed. Um, I had a difficult time believing that other people liked me. I had a difficult time enjoying the things that I had been enjoying previously, my, my hobbies and my families and my friends. Um, so one of the arguments or, or concerns that people have about taking psychiatric medications is they won't be themselves. They're afraid that they'll be somebody else. And either because it's been so long that I've been on it or, well, how to say this? Either I've been on the medication so long that who I am or who I think I am is me on the medication or that it really is true that I am more like my real self the way I ought to be on the medication. I, I choose to continue it. Right. So so by taking the medicine, it's not that you have a completely different personality, but rather you deeply feel like this is the person you are underneath all of this this depression that, that really doesn't belong there in the first place. That's a good way of saying it, yeah. Um, that I feel like myself on it. I, my personality isn't a whole lot different, but I'm much more upbeat. I, I, it's easier for me to be happy. I can still be sad and upset and anxious when I'm on my medication, but I'm not struggling to not feel those ways. Right. If that makes sense. D do you feel like, and I'm, I'm going to ask it this way, and this is going to sound insensitive, but, but not having ever been on those kinds of medications, and while I certainly have days here and there where I... I struggle with just not being feeling happy or not being, you know, not getting up on the right side of the bed that day. W would you say that your being on medicine puts you on par with others who would, and I, and I hate the word normal, but would fall in what we would call a normal range? Or do you feel like you're still one step away from that or some distance away from that, perhaps that, uh, that it's still in some ways a struggle on the medication. I feel you know, quote unquote normal. 
Um, one of the ways I describe uh, to people the, the situation that they find themselves in when I think they'll benefit from a medication is you're starting out from a, being in a hole. So even on a good day, even when you're trying, you're doing your best, you might not make it up to ground level. And what the uh, medication will do will either fill in that hole somewhat or give you a ladder to climb out to get you on uh, even footing where you, where you ought to be. You'll still have ups and downs as the terrain changes, and that's normal, but you're not going to be starting in a hole every day. Right, right. So I know in your notes you mentioned that your parents were converts to the church and that, that if I'm not mistaken, that because of that event, you joined the church at a young age? Yes, I was basically raised in the church. I wasn't born there. I was born in a hospital, but I was definitely <laughs> raised in the church. <laughs> uh, how old were you when uh, when your parents converted? Oh, I wasn't born yet. Oh, gotcha. They were like uh, late teens, early 20s. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And let me ask it this way. This may be a tricky question, but in what ways do you do you recognize that LDS culture perhaps influenced your depression? Or and here's what I'm getting at. I think sometimes in the church, either A, we have a great support system that, that maybe others do not have. So in some ways, I see that there's a there's a way to support those who may have depression or other mental illness. Well, on the other hand, we have very high expectations. Right, and that's that's the other side of the coin. And I wanted to see what your thoughts were between those two. Oh, it's very easy to look at all the, the things that I ought to do and see I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm lousy at this and I'm not doing that. And it's very easy to find enough material to beat yourself up. Did you feel like there was a bar in Mormonism? Like you have to you have to achieve these 73 things in order to get back to Heavenly Father? Um, when I was younger, yes. I mean, up till like the last three or four years, absolutely. It was, you gotta do everything you can, and after you've done everything you can, then Christ will help you. He'll, he'll make up the difference at the end of your life, after you've expended all your efforts, then he'll save you. That's the way I looked at it then. <sighs> uh, a lot more towards he wants to help us day by day, moment by moment. Um, I began to understand the atonement as not just suffering for our sins, but for all of our infirmities. There's a passage in Mosiah where um, King Benjamin's relating what the angel told him, saying that he'll he'll suffer... Maybe it's an Alma. I'll find it and we'll, we'll quote it better. But um, there's a passage that says he'll suffer uh, not just our sins, but also all of our infirmities. And I began to see that as he would understand my personal difficulties. He would understand what it would be like to be sick or to be in medical school or to feel overwhelmed. And then he would know, according to the flesh, how to succor his people or at least my person. Let me ask you another question, just in regards to LDS culture. Have you, have you, because of because of depression, have you had any, any experience with uh, with LDS family services, and and what could you share about that if you have? I had one experience with LDS family services. Um, it was back when I was an undergraduate, so I was probably about twenty two ish at the most, maybe twenty three or twenty four, but fairly young, a good ten years ago, when I was just starting to to feel depressed for the first time really, really depressed, not just like the, the early college feeling alone, but overwhelmed and sad and nothing is fun, nothing's happy. I, I was speaking to my bishop and he recommended that I go to LDS Family Services in the region of the country where I lived at that time. There were not uh, a lot of developed services in place. There was uh, one lady that I was referred to to go for counseling and um, I went to her once and I didn't like it at all. Um, I don't think she was a psychiatrist but she was recommending that I take medication and um, she was probably right but at that time I didn't feel like hearing it or, or doing that. Um, since then, uh, the way I, I started the, the cognitive behavioral therapy was through a, a friend of mine who worked for LDS Family Services, and I found out that he went to see a therapist on a regular basis just to kind of offload the stuff in his mind and heart so that he wouldn't be influencing uh, his patients in a negative way. And I, I took the feeling from that that, well, if he goes because it's part of his job, then why can't I go? Right, and... and I guess I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out a question to ask with that. Um, so other than that, I really haven't had any experiences with uh, LDS social services. As far as I know, it's not well developed in in my area of the country. So my, my experience here in Northern Ohio, I mean, you almost have to drive 150 miles to see somebody from LDS Family Services, and so I know that the stake I'm in that they have some some people who are 
essentially used as LDS family service representatives. But sometimes because of being out in the mission field where, where the church isn't this as is prevalent. This is the real world. Right. Utah's and a weird place. You got it. And so without the <laughs> access to these experts that are, you know, specifically trained as psychologists or psychiatrists or therapists, what I know sometimes they've done is they've taken, you know, a, so, a social services person and then had them essentially act in the role of a therapist which in some ways, you know, falls short of being the expert you need and to understand the ins and outs of the issues you're coming with. Oh, absolutely. Coming with. Yeah. There's, there's a certain amount that they can do with just reflective listening and their own life experience, but there's some that's missing. So I, I've had two experiences or two, two types of experiences with therapists who are, are not LDS. I've had friends who have seen therapists, um, who would, ex- would tell them, you know, I feel like doing this or I'm doing this. And it's not acceptable to me because of covenants I've made, because of my religion, basically. And some of them will say, no, that's that's not the problem. We'll say that, that, start over. And the therapist will tell them, no, it's normal to do that. Everybody does that. You should be doing that, too. You'll feel better if you do it. You just have to get over the guilt of it. Other therapists that I have had encounters with, like my own uh, therapist, he accepted that, to me, certain things were not uh, acceptable behaviors, and worked with me in that context. Not LDS, I think he's actually uh, atheist or agnostic, but he was able to accept that, for me, certain behaviors were taboo. Right, and that had to be helpful. I mean, obviously, having people who are outside your faith who are essentially saying, hey, you're, if what your faith is asking you to do is silly, go ahead and do what you want to, or what brings you what brings you happiness, but to find somebody who would respect that and, and help you draw that line had to have been uh, had to have been helpful. Yeah, it was. Very helpful. So I want to ask this, too. You know, you talk about going down in your in your home and just finding these closed spaces to just to just get away from everything for an hour to three hours and uh, i want to just ask you how what kind of impact that had on your wife and your children i mean how did they handle how did they handle being aware that obviously dad is having a hard time um at that time of my life it would be hard for me to tell you what the impact was because i wasn't particularly close to my wife at that time um i mean if i were her i would feel alone i would feel extra burden or extra weight because I have to do my job. I have to help out with my spouse who's not able to do all of his. Uh, I would feel worried. I, I remember one particular instance where I think my oldest son was maybe two or three and I was feeling very down and just horrible about myself and ended up basically on the kitchen floor crying, curled up. And uh, I remember telling my son at that time that you know it's okay to cry and that I or Daddy feels very sad right now. And I, I don't know what impact that's had on him. We haven't talked about it since then. It's been 10 years. Uh, but I have to imagine for her, uh, it was not easy. She was very supportive of me uh, going and talking to somebody. She's been very supportive of me taking medications. Uh, she's a, a very easygoing, roll the punches, make the best of everything kind of person to begin with. But I, I don't think it would be an easy thing to be married to someone who had uh, untreated mental illness. Right, right. And I can appreciate that. And uh, and I appreciate hearing that and, and the honesty that comes through from saying, hey, you know, I was very disconnected at that time. I really don't know, really don't know how, you know, she handled it. Um, I, I appreciate that because that honesty, I think, will be helpful to those who are listening, who have who have family who are struggling or perhaps they themselves. I want to I want to kind of go off into a kind of another tangent and uh, I want to talk about maybe some of the definitions of of different things that we hear spoken about within uh, within this kind of uh, what do I want to say this kind of group setting of things that people can can struggle with. And so if I just throw some words out to you, do you mind maybe giving us some some brief explanations of what each of these mean? Sure, we'll give that a try. Okay, so seasonal affective disorder. Okay, uh, seasonal affective disorder could be called like cabin fever. It would be people who feel. Symptoms of depression, of clinical depression, uh, primarily in the darker, colder, wetter regions and times of year. So classic places for that would be Seattle, Washington, or people in the Midwest uh, in the winter if it's long and dark. Uh, Alaska. Uh, it can happen anywhere, but that's just what's classic for it. People who feel symptoms of clinical depression during certain times of year. It, it's interesting you say that. I, I've got a very good friend who, who lives... Uh north of the united states border where hockey is very popular canadian and uh, right and uh, and he has a, a spouse who's had this issue of of having depression during specifically during the winter months 
and very serious depression. I mean, just lay in your bed all day, not function at all kind of depression. And eventually they ended up treating it with, with some kind of like electric shock uh, to the brain to kind of reset the system. ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, yeah. It and must it, have been pretty it, bad. Yeah, and it caused her to lose some short-term memory and and also some kind of like memory she had over the past year before that. Um, but it also fixed the problem. And as far as I know, she's been uh, been depression-free since then. It's just it's just neat how we come up with some of these solutions and uh, in the ways in which they they go about, uh, I guess, attacking the problem. Um, postpartum depression, which is one we hear a lot, and obviously has to do with uh, with women after they have a child. Yeah, that was mentioned by. Uh, well, it was mentioned in general conference last time after baby blues. Uh, that would be people having symptoms of clinical depression uh, following having a baby. Uh, typically, tearfulness, uh, anxiety, feeling overwhelmed, um, feeling disconnected from their baby, uh, un- un- having difficulty feeling happy with or about their baby. Um, fairly common. Uh, some people struggle with it for you know, a couple of weeks. Some people, that'll be how depression starts in them. Um, it happens some pregnancies, but not others. Like um, my wife had it for two of the pregnancies, but not for the others. And she was on medication for a little while during that time. After a few months, she felt like, you know, let's get off this and see if I'm okay. Ah, she's okay. And uh, life is good. With, uh, with postpartum depression and the seasonal affective disorder, is there probably an issue already there, but, but mild? And that just these life events, or as you're pointing out with the, uh, with the seasonal issue, the weather or the climate or whatnot, is, is the problem already there and this is just heightening it or, or do we think that like the actual pregnancy is what's triggering the onset of that? Oh, that's probably a really complicated question. I'll try and give a simple answer. Uh, one statement that's good to throw out there is that just about everyone, if you look at the, the, the definitions for depression and bipolar and anxiety, everyone's going to feel some of those things some of the time. It's just the degree to which it affects your life, whether or not you have a, a clinical diagnosis or a real uh, medical problem. So then the answer, does was something there all the time? Um, for some people, I'd say, yeah. I mean, someone who has a tendency towards depression, uh, a pregnancy could trigger it. Um, someone who ha- tends towards it, the being having moved to a, a different area that experiences less sunshine uh, could trigger it. I'm trying to put together a thought here. Ask me your question again. That might trigger it. That's okay. I uh, the the seasonal affective disorder and. Uh in the postpartum, just trying to get oh, a feel okay. of yeah. if it's already there. I think with the, the postpartum depression, it may be the hormonal changes as well that triggers it. Oh, there's stress. There's good stress and there's bad stress. And for your, your body and your mind, sometimes it's just plain stress, whether it's good or bad. There's a, a rating scale to judge how much stress a person is under based on their life events. Um, the highest you can get for an event is 50. And moving, marriage, death, the birth of a child, divorce, they all have the same highest rating possible. So you could be having good things happen to you. It's still stress, and you could still respond by being depressed or anxious. It, it seems paradoxical, but it's a great event. You've had a successful pregnancy. You've given birth. It's a, it's a major life event, and that in and of itself could trigger depression. So even though it's a positive, it's still a system overload. Absolutely. Whether it be marriage, a new job, anything. Right. Some of the other ones here, you, you mentioned earlier uh, in a kind of as a side comment in one of your, your things you were saying was bipolar. So help us understand what bipolar means. Okay. Um, so what we think of as major depressive disorder would be unipolar depression, only one side. The bipolar, the other pole is uh, mania. Um, medically or clinically, mania is characterized by people getting a little bit out of control or having uh, a lot of grandiose thoughts things that people in in mania would typically do they'll they'll buy things uh, more than they can afford Um, they'll eat more they'll start projects they'll sleep less Uh, they tend to have pressured speech Uh, outside the church we say that people would tend to have sex with people they wouldn't normally have sex with Uh, they'll start using drugs or alcohol when they don't normally do that Um, they do a lot of reckless seeming things so then there, there are two types of of mania there's outright clinical mania, which is either severe and lasts a long time, 
or is bad enough that the person has to be hospitalized. Very few people meet the actual bipolar type 1 uh, definition. What most people have uh, when they have bipolar is they get hypomania. They'll have some of those symptoms uh, to a lesser degree uh, for a shorter amount of time. They might just make the purchase. They might just make uh, a lot of bad decisions. They might start new projects, um, that sort of thing. So... Maybe taking this kind of a, a step, you know, back into the realm of, of church culture and, and within religion and maybe just talk about some overarching issues. When we talk about mental illness or any of the other facets of it, depression, being bipolar, uh, post, you know, postpartum depression or this seasonal affective disorder that we talked and about. Don't forget anxiety. Anxiety. Yeah. Which obviously is another thing that plays into it that lots of, lots of people deal with. Um, what's the, you know, what's the play between it? So obviously in the gospel, we have this idea, and I think sometimes culturally, we will see people who are struggling from these types of issues. So let's just take, for instance, someone who's bipolar, and they're on this facet of mania where they're making, where they think they're kind of on this positive end, but they're still making lots of bad choices. And within the church culture, some would look at some of these things going on and say, oh my goodness, there's, there's sin. Um, how do we delve into this and kind of take apart what the person is, actually deciding to do using their agency and what what really they have no control over because it's part of this this struggle in their mind yeah that's something that i have wondered about many times um or say if i'm feeling depressed and i don't go out home teaching because i'm depressed i mean is it is it my mental illness that's keeping me from doing it or is it me deciding not to do it um, I don't know that I have a great answer. My answer, my, my easier or cop out would be, it's probably some of both. Um, so we're talking about mania. So let's say, oh, just as a safe thing, overspending. And, you know, debt isn't necessarily a, a horrid sin, but we, we talk about in the church, uh, getting out of debt, staying out of debt, living with your means and, and so forth. So someone who gets into a, a manic or a hypomanic state and maxes out their credit cards buying, I don't know, a bunch of tools or collectibles or something that goes along with one of their hobbies, um, how much of that is their own choice and how much of it is the bipolar? I really don't know. I can answer for myself in, in some of my times when I've been depressed and not lived up to my potential or not done the things that I was supposed to do. Um, there are times where... Looking back, I could look at it and say, you know, I was really depressed. It was probably the depression at that time that kept me from doing it. I can look at others and say, you know what, I probably could have done it. I know that once I get out there and start it, I would have felt better. And I knew that at the time, but I chose not to. It's, I think it's going to be based on each decision as it goes, which I guess brings up the, the idea or the point that you, it's very dangerous to judge somebody on what they're doing when you have no idea what's going on in their head or heart. So, so in other words, perhaps in some situations, sin can lead to some of these feelings. In other situations, the feelings may lead to someone making bad choices or sinning. And, uh, the reason I want to hit on this, and, and I know this is something that you've, you've put in kind of wanting to, to discuss in this outline as well, but, all right, so the reason I asked that question, and I, and I'm guilty of this myself, but having grown up in, uh, in a family that never had these kinds of issues, and having joined the church as an older teenager, and being aware of the church culture, that I, that I in many ways saw as very, very, there was very much a lack of understanding with these kinds of issues. And so I'll give a couple examples. I know that I've had people in the church who have essentially, you know, told me that, hey, it's when someone's depressed, they just need to get over it and, you know, put a positive uh, spin on things, get up on the right side of the bed and get themselves moving. And the more they do, the more they work, the more they get out and get things accomplished, they'll just feel good about themselves. And I think culturally, we've we've kind of held that. And I think it's a, a prevalent view just in mainstream society, at least up until maybe the last 10 or 15 years. And recently, we had Elder Holland in a conference address talk about depression and, and essentially, he made the comment that while he's all for positive thinking, that that is not the fix for these kinds of issues all by themselves, and that we ought not to look at others who are struggling and make judgments and conclusions about about their righteousness or their standing before God based on the behaviors that they're exhibiting due to the uh, the struggles that they're having. So I wanted to get, I guess, your thoughts on on maybe on a personal side or also medically helping others through these kinds of issues 
you know, how can we better help those around us understand that there's more going on here than just somebody needing to think positive? So how to help other people be aware of? Yeah, and empathize with. Well, I think that Elder Holland speaking about it in conference will help some people be more aware of it. Um, I don't know that we need sacrament talks on it or home teaching messages on it or something. Oh, how to make them aware of it. Um, letting them see uh, examples in people's lives that they know to maybe see when they were depressed. Was it uh, uh, George Albert Grant? or George, George Albert Smith. Smith, there yes. we go. Smith, who uh, suffered from depression that really wasn't talked about in the church until just recently. I'd love to see some of the uh, journal entries or... Uh, experiences of other people around him to to say you know what he was like when he was depressed um, when he became prophet did he still have those experiences I mean, I'd be very interested to see what his journal entries at that time looked like or what other people's uh, observations of him uh, at that time look like uh, when he became prophet did all that go away I don't know he may have still had his moments did the Lord lift him up and give him an extra measure because it was needed probably. Does that mean that if I'm depressed and I'm not getting the help from the Lord that would fix it, that I'm a bad person? No. Um, that was, was something that I, I struggled with too before, thinking that um, if I was just good enough, I wouldn't feel depressed. Let's see, we don't need to go there really. Um, so you were asking about Elder Holland's and what I, things what I thought. How you increase awareness. Yeah, and maybe perhaps within LDS culture, I mean, have you felt like at those moments, like obviously you already said, like generally speaking, you felt like you weren't making it, like you weren't, you weren't making the bar or hitting the cut when you were younger. I'm still not and, making it. Well, okay. <laughs> okay. Well I, well, I think you're doing pretty well. So, and I, and I apologize, Rick, this is not, usually when I'm talking with somebody, it's a subject that I've, I, I'm familiar and intimate with enough that I can kind of make my way through the conversation sounding like I have um, some understanding of the topic, if that makes sense. This is this is kind of a side issue for me. This is not. This is my wife suffers from depression a little bit, but but generally speaking, this is not an issue I've ever had to deal with face to face with my family or anybody close to me. So I'm just trying to. I'm trying to. In a, in a sense, I certainly empathize, and I certainly have concern, and I certainly want people who struggle to have help. But it's also a matter of kind of faking my way through the conversation as I as I pretend like I know what to ask. So bear with me. Okay, so 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 you you're saying that you're not somebody who really has experienced this in his own life, either through your own experiences or, or through your family to a, a real significant degree. So um, how how are you made aware of it? How how did you find out that it was a, a problem? You know, that's a good question, and I wasn't I wasn't planning on using this last thirty seconds as part of the interview, but because you asked that, I will. So I had a uh, a missionary who served here just shortly after I joined the church, and I grew very close to this missionary. He showed up at my house one day with his companion and I was, uh, you know, young, just newly married. We bought our first house and immediately this house had major plumbing issues. And uh, this missionary happened to have been a plumber before he came out. And, uh, he was just the right guy at the right time. The Lord put him on my doorstep that day and, and he ended up coming back the next, that, all that day and the day after to fix all the plumbing in my home. And we'd, you know, run to the, one of the box stores and get supplies and get things fixed up and just really grew attached to him. I, that's the reason I'm telling the story. I mean, in the sense of giving it the background is so that listeners can understand how attached I was to this missionary. If I had to list those five missionaries that I was closest to, he's on that list. And uh, he ended up going home, starting a plumbing business of his own and, uh, just be, being married himself, having kids, starting his own business. Depression kind of entered the picture and, uh, because of that depression, he ended up seeking out help from, from, you know, medical help, medical experts, doctors and therapists, and they ended up prescribing and put him on Zoloft. And whereas you shared your experience of having these medicines in some way, shape or form help, for him, the medicine did the exact opposite. It sent him to the extreme side of depression. A few weeks later, he ended up being suicide. And unfortunately for me, I, I called this family on Christmas Day because I hadn't talked to him so long and I just wanted to do a Merry Christmas. And his, his sister got on the phone and when I asked for him, he started crying and handed her dad the phone and he started crying. And so I'll never forget that day and never forget his story. And, and so in some ways, that's the connection I have to mental illness is knowing that, we, you know, the reason for this interview is to get the word out about some of the things that are going on behind these so that people who are listening who might know somebody who's affected or if they themselves are are affected by these issues that they might seek out the help they need and pay close attention to the types of help they get to ensure that it's a proactive uh, help rather than the other side of the coin. So that's my experience and then mentioning the uh, the friend I've got up north who's whose wife has had a serious uh, hard a hard time. 
uh, as well. And so those are my connections to, to mental illness. And, and maybe, maybe for you to touch on that, would you mind speaking for a moment about some of the cares and concerns that you have as a doctor when you deal with somebody who has these kinds of depressing, depression issues in treating those, how you, how you ensure that, that the medicines are helping because they do unfortunately in some cases have the adverse effect. Um, some, some of the psych meds have what we call black box warnings. Um, Meaning that really bad things have happened, uh, such that when you're prescribing, you have to tell the patient about those potential side effects. And some of the ones for, for psych meds, paradoxically, uh, are suicidal thoughts or actions. Um, the way I explain that to a lot of my patients is, and I don't know if this is the case with, with your missionary friend at all, just that what I, I tell people from, from my training is that there are some people who are really, really depressed and are so depressed they're not getting up and doing anything. And when you give them medication, they feel a little bit better. They feel better enough to get up and start acting on some of their feelings. And that's the, the times when people have had suicidal thoughts or, or action. So to answer the more basic question, when I start somebody on a new medication, um, I want to hear back from them at least by phone within a week or two to see that they're not doing any worse. Many of the psych meds will take a few weeks or uh, several increases of dosing to get uh, a positive effect. Um, so first I check to make sure they're not any worse. Another thing I look for are signs of mania or hypomania. If you give someone who actually has bipolar uh, certain antidepressants, it can take them out of the depression side and we say flip them into mania, cause them to kind of swing all the way the other way and, and have a manic episode. So I look for things like that. Uh, I look for changes in weight, change in appetites, and I, I look for, are they feeling better based on the things they, they told me when they came to me in the first place? Um, I ask them about lots of aspects of their, their life and feelings, and I compare those results to what they're telling me afterwards. There are some like, real numeric, uh, like quantitative ways to ask a series of questions and have the patient rate their response and get a number, and that number tells you how depressed they are or are not. Uh, in theory, you could give that test to someone before the medication, after the medication, and, and, and see. And in research studies, they do, but in, in practice, I just, I ask the person how they're feeling. Well, you, you told me you were having trouble with this. Well, how is this doing now? And, uh, go based on, on what they're telling me primarily. Does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. And, and I think often it sounds like from the story that my friend's family shared with me about how all of this went downhill. It was almost like he wasn't prepped enough to report back things that actually gotten worse rather than better and that he didn't feel like there was there was a way in which to to kind of address that. It was almost like he thought to himself, you know, hey, things are getting worse, but maybe it's just going to take a while or and obviously you get to a point in that depression where you say this is never going to get better because obviously that's the reason someone's having suicidal thoughts to begin with is that they feel like life is just always going to be this bad or worse. Well, we'll never get into his head or anyone else's head who's done that, but I, I could see that starting a medication that's supposed to help, you're on it, I did what the doctor said, I don't feel better, could be horribly depressing because you feel even more trapped. Um, Zoloft is one of those medications that frequently you have to increase the dose. And I, mean, I don't think you know, and I don't know what, what happened in that case. And follow-up is important. Sure. Yep. Yep. So let's, uh, let's maybe get away from, from the church side of things and just talk about the world. What are some things in the environment that, uh, that affect how we perhaps deal with these kinds of issues or how pertinent we are to having having them affect us. I mean, are there certain things in the environment that seem to be, um, have causal, a causal, uh, what's the word I want to use, that seem to have kind of a, a, a cause and effect to, to these kinds of, uh, these kinds of struggles? You want to know about things in someone's environment or their life that would trigger or, or predispose them to having depression or anxiety or, or something like that. Multiple life events or stressors. Um, I get plenty of uh, single moms who come in and have a lot of anxiety and depression. They have enormous pressures on them. I don't know how they do it. Um, a lot of them end up needing medication to make it through either because uh, they have a predisposition to mental illness or they're being pushed so far by their life circumstances that it reaches a, a clinical and, and very problematic state. Other things that would predispose people to depression and anxiety and so forth. Um, very traumatic events. I mean, there's post-traumatic stress disorder, which is probably a whole topic in and of itself amongst the, the soldiers. But then there are also uh, people who are abused as children or maybe even been aware of it uh, when they were younger. And that can be uh, very unsettling and disruptive of, of their developing uh, mind and emotions. I think obesity plays into it somewhat. People who are obese tend to not 
exercise, and exercise releases endorphins, which is the body's uh, happy chemical. And um, so people who don't exercise, people who are obese, I think would be predisposed to feeling depressed. Chemically, in addition to the, the societal uh, frowning upon uh, their physical appearance. Um, how about factors like, I know you had mentioned in, in some of the notes for this, like video games. I know today's generation, there are kids who sit in front of the TV and play video games from sun up till sundown with the exception of being at school. Um, any thoughts on on whether we as a as a culture medically are beginning to see this connection? Um, Elder Bednar gave an excellent CES fireside on this a couple of years ago called What is Real? Uh, about Satan kind of changing his tactics from instead of tempting us to misuse our physical bodies, he's tempting us to ignore our physical bodies. Um, having Being someone who's played video games before and, and sometimes in the past a little bit compulsively, I think in part uh, due to depression or maybe partly the cause, this me personally, when I walk away from having played something for four or five hours, uh, I feel kind of bad sometimes. I mean, if, if it's the reward for a lot of good work done, fine, but, but frequently it's an escape from the, the pressure and the worries of, of the world. And you, you step back and say, oh, great. Now I just wasted four more hours and I still have all this stuff to do. Um, so I think it can play in, in that regard. I mean, that's what I felt ex- personally. I would expect that other people would have similar feelings in, in some shape or form. Uh, feeling like either I have no life or they would look at all the things that they have in, quote, real life and be sad or depressed about having to deal with the real portion of their life wanting to get back to the part of their life that they enjoy the most at that time. Right. So, and, and I'll just use an example I can see, because I, I used to play a game called The Sims, which I think most listeners will be familiar with. And uh, it's really easy in that game to create a completely alternative life for yourself, where, you know, you've got, uh, you know, and this is a game that I played in high school. So you're married, you've got kids, you've got, a, you know, the dog, you've got a job. You, and you can almost, I can see how people could take something like that and turn it into, as Elder Bednar talked about, this kind of alternative reality, which in some ways can consume you. Well, one of the things that video games like that do is they, they give you a lot of reward, and frequently, quickly, uh, you can advance levels or you can get things uh, so much faster in those environments than you can in real life. And that triggers uh, the release of serotonin and dopamine in your brain, the reward and reinforcement centers, and makes you feel good about it. Um, one of the, the common classes of medications that we use for depression are uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors to make that neurotransmitter more available uh, for people so that they, they feel better. Uh, there is there is a chemical or a physiologic response to achievement in those games that takes much more work and time and effort to achieve in uh, our earthly life as opposed to our virtual life. I uh, I want to kind of start to work towards wrapping up there. I wanted to ask you this, and I should have asked it to, asked you earlier when we were talking about it, but the Elder Holland talk on depression, when you listened to that talk, was it was it helpful to you in any way? I mean, having having had depression issues in the past, and and certainly kind of in a some in some way dealing with them now, but handling them okay with your medication, was that talk something that meant a lot to you? It was validating in some ways um, to acknowledge that mental illnesses are are real or are are physiologic and aren't necessarily the the products of sin. Uh, to identify prominent people in the past, like uh, President Lincoln and Churchill and uh, President Smith, who uh, dealt with depression, and yet we see all the things that they accomplished. Um, it's kind of strange to say things I don't like about a general authorities or an apostles' talk. Um, <laughs> but um, the part at the end, when he was talking about the lady that was in a plane accident and was uh, burned, and, and oh, right, yeah, wanted I, to, yep. yeah, it, it, to me, at the end, that it, it felt like a bootstraps kind of. Uh, message or uh, somebody else did it. You you should too. Right. Look at her. Here's this tragic thing that happened to her, and she's figured out how to push forward. And so yeah, for some people, for some people that might have been validating. For me, it was a little more. I don't know. Pick yourself up and keep going. I mean, which is important. You do have to pick yourself up and keep going, but it's not always the the only thing you can do. 
Right. And there may be some people who listen to that. And at that very moment, they're just not in a place where that's going to be helpful. Well, do you want to talk about things I think you can do? Yeah, I'd love to, to wrap up maybe talking about your recommendations for what, what those who have these kinds of issues, ways in which they can be aware of them and tackle them. Okay. Um, so for people who think they might be struggling from mental illness, whether it be anxiety or depression or bipolar, um, I would give them the message that medication is not a cop-out. It's something that we have available uh, to be used, and I personally feel that uh, Heavenly Father is okay with it. I mean, we If you only had a hammer and you had to put a screw in, he's not going to be hard on you for, for beating on the screw, but if you have a screwdriver too, you really ought to use it, sort of thing. At the same time, uh, look at things in your own life that will make a big difference. Things that will make a big difference. Um, exercise and associating with other people. Um, the exercise will re- uh, release the endorphins, help you feel good. Um, you know it's good for you, so you get some, some positive reinforcement. Uh, gets you out in the sunlight, in the fresh air, typically. Um, keep your sleep patterns regular. Um, irregular sleep patterns can make depression worse, can flip people into mania. If you're on medications, uh, I recommend you take them regularly. Uh, if you want to change it, you know, pray about it, talk to your doctor, and, and find out what the side effects might be uh, of going off of it. Um, if you have a family member who you suspect uh, may be having some form of mental illness, it's hard to make anybody do anything, uh, but you can lovingly try the best way you can for that person based on, on how you know them to see somebody and ask and try. If you are in that situation, ask around uh, to friends and family who, if they know anybody who is being treated and, and how it's going. Do they like the doctor? Does the doctor listen to them? So kind of in summary, the things that I think you can do for yourself or for other people, um, do what you can and also realize or feel that medication is not a cop-out. Uh, especially if it ends up being something that you, you need to do long term. There are some people who get into tough situations and need the medication only for six months and never need it again. Most people who end up needing a medication more than twice will benefit from being on it for life. And taking a, a step out of my doctor hat and looking at my, my spiritual self, I believe that when we do the things that we know we can, uh, Heavenly Father is more able to bless us because we're, we're doing more. If you show your faith by going to see the doctor or trying a medication, whether that medication does something chemically for you or not, if you're feeling better, to me that's sort of the important thing, whether it's because the neurotransmitters are, are more prevalent or working better or what have you, or if it's because you demonstrated your faith and humility and doing something the Heavenly Father has blessed you, uh, we might not know. But you tried something, you did it, and you feel better. Right. So in some ways, the 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 effort or the action to do something can still bring the blessings of God upon you, whether, whether that's an actual miracle on God's part or whether it's the fact that he's put these medicines here for us to have access to and to help us to deal with with these kinds of issues that so many uh, people in the world and in Latter-day Saints uh, struggle with. Yes, I, I do believe that. Yeah, and in many ways, you know, you're talking earlier about the bar and how you felt there was this bar that was set. You had to reach it and you always felt like you were falling short. And then they raised it. Right, and then they raised the bar, right? <laughs> Only for missionaries, though. <laughs> and uh, And you look at talking about these medicines and whether the medicine actually helped you in your specific instance or you feel better simply because you're making the effort, I think that goes back to that gospel principle that in some ways having the medicine is a grace. The the effort you make to seek out God's help is a grace. The effort you make to seek out experts in a field such as doctors or therapists who can assist you can be, in a sense, a grace of God. And anything we do that we're trying to remedy or rectify, whatever is keeping us from from progressing and being happy and having joy, anything we do to, to counter that can be seen as, as part of God's grace as well. And, and so I loved you know, us kind of sitting down and talking about this issue, issue, which I think is an important one. And I think so many people out there are struggling. Many of them maybe are going to... Their bishop who, you know, nothing against bishops having served as one, we're not trained, you know, bishops are not trained to deal with these kinds of issues specifically. 
And, and so I know members go to bishops and maybe they're getting certain counsel. You just, just pray harder, have more faith. And maybe listening to this podcast, hopefully they'll know that, you know, that's not the only venue they have for help. And that if they're going to, let's just, you know, use a poor example of saying they're going to LDS Family Services and that, and the help isn't there, not to simply stop there, but to look for help somewhere else. And I think you've kind of show, uh, shined a light on this issue, which is whatever your, whatever your struggle is, don't be afraid, don't be embarrassed to go out and ask somebody uh, to help you find, you know, the assistance you need to be able to work through this and to, to have more positive feelings in your life and not to allow these kinds of things to keep you down. Well, beautiful. Dr. Rick, I uh, appreciate you being on uh, the podcast today and uh, just, just hope you know how much uh, I think the listeners will, will benefit from this because I think every one of us, as we go through life, will have one or two instances at least where somebody we love and care about is dealing with some kind of mental issue or, or disorder or illness that uh, that each of us could use more empathy and understanding to be of help to them. So thank you so much, Dr. Rick. It's been fun. We should do it again sometime. Thank you. Thank you.